and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, March 4th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by a video conference by Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, Julie. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everyone. And Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi there. After the news, we will play my interview with KHN's Jordan Rao, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. This month's patient had a mental health crisis, which wasn't helped any by a giant hospital bill. But first this week, there is good news and bad news when it comes to COVID. The good news, as expected, the FDA has approved Johnson & Johnson's one-dose vaccine, and the first shots have already been delivered. More good news, Merck will be helping produce the J&J vaccine, although bad news probably won't make an appreciable difference in supply until April. So how much of a game changer is the J&J vaccine? Sarah, you've been our, our vaccine watcher here. I think the biggest game changer, well, two big game changers for J&J, one is it can be stored kind of in regular temperatures that every pharmacy or medical facility would be able to keep it. The other thing is it's a one-shot vaccine. We know a lot of people don't return to get their second shots of products that are two doses, and it just makes it a lot easier, particularly for hard-to-reach populations, whether it's because somebody's job makes them, you know, makes it a lot harder for them to get a shot, whether for someone who's homeless, who public health people have to physically go out and find, not having to go back and find them again might be easier. So it should really help facilitate getting more people vaccinated faster. And I guess also people without cars or people who live in rural areas who have who have cars, but have to drive long distances to to get to a place with a shot, right? Right. I think there's a lot of optimism for this shot to really make things easier, not just in the U.S., but all over the world, um, particularly where infrastructure around medical care isn't great. The big thing that people are trying to emphasize now is a lot of times the media has been reporting the top line numbers from the trials and the top line numbers make J&J's vaccine seem not quite as good as the other two vaccines. The important thing to remember is all of the clinical trials were designed a bit differently. So they were measuring different things when you see that top line number. So it's not quite fair to compare apples to apples. Um, J&J's trial was also conducted later when we have these viral variants. And at the end of the day, they're all really good vaccines. There's a little bit of concern that because of some of the things around J&J's vaccine that makes it easier to distribute, it might go to populations that feel like they that are normally sort of disadvantaged and They don't want people to think, oh, we're giving this second class vaccine to, you know, poor communities or minority communities and so forth. So public health folks are really trying to do a lot of messaging around that to make people realize these are all really good products, particularly when it comes to severe outcomes, death, hospitalizations, and so forth. They're all pretty much equivalent. I, for one, would be really happy to take the J&J vaccine. I would like to take any vaccine at this point. And since our listeners can't see everybody on this Zoom that we're looking at each other, we are all shaking our heads. Yeah. Yes, we are all shaking our heads in the affirmative. But to to what Sarah was just talking about, the homeless, you know, I talked about before the J&J approval, maybe two weeks ago, I was talking to a doctor who's a street doctor, treats the homeless. You know, I was saying, you know, well, this is going to make it easier for you. And he says, well, they're not going to, they're going to be upset that um, they're getting the second rate shot. 
And, you know, I, I pushed back because I said, well, first of all, you know, what, what Sarah just said, it's not entirely apples to apples. Um, and I've spent some time with this doctor tracing after patients in the street, you know, finding out what parking lot they're hanging out that day. And I said, you, you, you know, you talk about how they're afraid to come in for medical care. You've got to reach them, get them an appointment, get them in and then get them back in again three or four weeks later, depending on Pfizer. I said, isn't it going to be you can take this to them? And you find them and you give it to them and they're safe. And he said, oh, yeah, you're right. So um, more or less. More or less. Um, so, I mean, I think the way we talk about Johnson & Johnson, if we had gotten Johnson & Johnson first, first, we would have been elated. But because Moderna and, and, and Pfizer are so extraordinary, I mean, 94, 95 percent is extraordinary. You know, we would have been happy with a 72 or whatever the American, the U.S. J&J but, was. But if, the J&J is way better than that if you look at what really matters, which is people getting really sick, getting hospitalized or getting dead. I, I'm pretty sure there's zero deaths in the trial population. Um, yeah, there. I think there were zero hospitalizations too, right? Right. They had zero deaths or hospitalizations caused by um, COVID. Although I think if we had gotten the J&J vaccine first, it might have a 95% efficacy because of when the trials were done. Um, so somewhat controversially following the Merck announcement, President Biden announced that the U.S. would have a large enough supply by the end of May to vaccinate every adult in the U.S. But as I pointed out on Twitter yesterday, producing enough doses and getting them into the arms of people are two very different things, given what a mess it still is for even people in the top priority groups. I keep seeing people who are in their 70s and 80s who can't get appointments to get shots. Does it feel like Biden is overpromising here? Do we really think they're going to be able to ramp up the delivery as much as they're going to ramp up the production? He didn't say everybody would be vaccinated. He, no, he, he did said not. we'd have enough shots to vaccinate everybody. I think that got, people got confused. He was careful how he said that. He's not saying that by May 31st, I guess, every vaccine will have been put in an arm. Um, it will take longer than that. But it, like in my county where I live, it has gotten better right now than it was a week ago. There's more vaccine available for people 65 and up. We don't know how hesitancy is going to change. And we don't know how much smarter the vaccination campaign and where they do it and how they do it and what kind of outreach the logistics. They're talking about adding more phone lines because not everybody has internet access or even people who have internet access. Some of these sites are very hard to navigate. I've navigated several on behalf of relatives by now. And I think it's going to be better. By May, it's going to look a lot better. I don't think it's going to be perfect. I don't think everyone's going to have confidence. I don't think everybody who wanted a shot will have gotten that appointment. I think there'll still be problems in rural areas. I think there'll be problems in urban areas. <laughs> you know, I don't think this all goes away. But is there a trajectory? Do things look like we're still in a crisis, but like now we're in a crisis that maybe you can get a whole lot of arms around as opposed to this is just one big mess, which is where we were four to six weeks ago. What I think is also interesting is sort of with the hesitancy, you know, we're starting to see numbers sort of improve as more people do get vaccinated and vaccines, you know, slowly are becoming more available, that the number of people who say they are interested and would get a vaccine is increasing, which is a promising sign. And this is really before, you know, there's a federal government run campaign up and running to discourage vaccine hesitancy and to encourage people to get the vaccine. You know, I think that the government is sort of treading cautiously here. They don't want to, you know, have this huge campaign saying to get a vaccine when it's still really difficult to get a vaccine. But I think that in the coming weeks and months, you know, we'll see more of that. And as cities and states, you know, get their infrastructure to get these vaccines better, hopefully those numbers will continue to go up as the supply is also increasing. But the hesitancy is real. And, you know, I think all of us have talked to uh, people in the healthcare world who, who have talked with their colleagues who even in nursing homes, even in clinics, 
even in, in hospitals, there are, there are medical personnel who have chosen not to get vaccinated. As the weeks go on, those numbers are ticking up, but they're not flooding. They're ticking. I talked to a doctor, a family physician. The numbers Ap- of people getting the vaccines, not the yes, numbers of people saying yes. they're hesitant. Yeah. No, but they, like I talked to a doctor the other night who's in Appalachia. Very vaccine hesitant. They don't, you know, they don't like flu shots there. She says this is a perpetual problem. When she told me that the number of the staff in the clinic, including some, you know, uh, not just physicians, but other people who work in the clinic who are eligible, she said it's, it's, you know, it's getting better, but just a trickle better. And I asked her how it had changed. And she said when they started vaccinating, about 40% of the staff did take the shot, meaning 60 did not, medical staff and the people who work with the doctors. After seeing the people, you know, that the doctors took the vaccine, that they were safe, that, you know, they didn't drop dead. They didn't have, you know, their ears didn't fall off. I mean, nothing happened. They're fine. They're healthy. And they're beginning to have a more normal life. And they don't have as much PPE. And it's better. She said it went up from 40 to 50 percent. So they're doing everything right. You know, you talk to a trusted healthcare source. You you see an example. You have someone answer your questions patiently. And they still only have 50 percent after two months of working on this. So... Yeah, there are parts of the country where this is going to be tough. I I was going to say before, in terms of logistics, one thing that I think will happen as supply improves and sort of matches demand more closely is the systems should get easier for people wanting to get a shot because you just don't need these same complicated appointment scheduling prioritization systems. Some of these mass sites where you now need an appointment for, you might just be able to say, oh, hey, it's Saturday. I'm free. I can, you know, drive to this site. And I think since we know a lot of states, cities and so forth have not been so good with some of these scheduling processes, hopefully just the amount of supply will make that logistical coordination a lot easier and a lot less frustrating for people. All right. So so vaccinations are moving along, if not as fast as people would like. Now, the not so good news, after some dramatic drops, cases of COVID are not just leveling off, but going back up in many places. And what genomic surveillance is being done suggests that may be due in part to more transmissible variants, not just those from Britain and Brazil and South Africa, but some that are being homegrown right here in the United States. Notwithstanding that, several hard-hit states are tossing their mask mandates, and in the case of Texas, eliminating existing social distancing requirements. Have we literally learned nothing in the last year? I think we've learned that if you roll back too fast, we get another spike of cases. <laughs> so that's what we've learned and someone isn't paying attention. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers of, in Texas in terms of cases, deaths and so forth, when they actually first put in some of their um, social distancing, mask wearing rules and so forth in the summer, Texas was actually doing better than than they're doing now. So the fact that they're lifting it now is not ideal. Of course, we know like our country is, you know, fluid. There's lots of travel. So anything that happens in Texas could impact the rest of the country. Right now, we're at this really crucial point where if we can hold on a few more months and get people vaccinated, we can change behavior. Another wave now may push everything back further, again, particularly because we don't want to sort of give variants that have the ability to escape vaccine a chance to thrive and giving that that opportunity would be really problematic. So the former head of OSHA was on Twitter yesterday with a thread suggesting that, you know, with a Democratic administration, OSHA could actually step in and require employers to do things to protect their workers. That is within their purview. Um, I would think that would cause great amounts of angst. On the other hand, 
they could theoretically override some, you know, Texas and Florida and Mississippi and some of these other places that either don't have or are lifting their their uh, social distancing and mask mandates. And anybody think that might that there's a world in which that would happen? I don't. I read that thread, and I guess the thing that seemed problematic about th- those plans is that it seemed like it would take so much time for OSHA to actually do the work. That by the time they got to the point of having those regulations or guidelines in place, it would probably be too late. We'd already have herd immunity. Well, <laughs> you know, whatever kinds of consequences of Texas lifting their bans would probably have already happened by the time they could get um, any procedures in place. But yeah, I I mean, it is sort of interesting to me. Yes, there's been a little bit of condemnation coming from the Biden administration about Texas and Mississippi and so forth. But it is a little bit frustrating to feel like they don't have a lot of other powers right now beyond the bully pulpit. The one thing they've done in past health related or safety, they've done with highway safety, where rather than they go for the carrot instead of the stick and they put things, but this requires legislation, they say states that do, you know, reach for this higher safety goal, get more money. And they did that a lot when they were, uh, I think it was moving the drinking age from 21 to 18. I think that's when they did it. And I think they may have also done it with some speed limit issues with 65 and 55. You know, you're, there is legislation pending right now. Could you put some kind of bonus money for states that have mask mandates and compliance with CDC recommendations or something? I mean, in theory, maybe. I mean, given how difficult it is to get the stimulus bill and it's still being scaled back and negotiated in the Senate, I don't know that you could do that on the bill here. Um, you know, could you stick it on other legislation related down the road? Possibly. I don't, you know, no one in the Biden administration has talked about that. I don't know if it was easier to do in the highway world than it is in the mask world. So when they when they lowered the speed limits and threatened to take away states highway money if they didn't lower their speed limits, um, I'm trying to remember if that even that may I think that went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said it was okay. That was the case that was overruled when they said that the man that the Medicaid mandate part of the ACA um, was not okay. So one would presume that they couldn't do that anymore. That was based punitive. on the Medicaid ruling. Right. You might be that, able to do it right. as a bonus. Yes, I think right? that's, uh, that's you right. Can, you can, rewarding states for good behavior is slightly different and a little bit less coercive. It is less yes. coercive. So, it is less coercive. And the Medicaid thing had to do with state coercion. So yes. I, I'm not an expert in how you put carrots into large spending bills. But um, I, I mean, I do think there is is a way to create some kind of financial incentives for states that do such and such according to CDC recommendations or, you know, FAA recommendations or whatever. I mean, that's federal. So that's a bad example. Something else that you get states to do and you, you know, you give them, you know, a cherry on top. Um, but we'll talk about carrots yeah. in a minute when we talk about reconciliation. Um, but first, the Senate Finance Committee on Wednesday advanced the nomination of California Attorney General Javier Becerra. But the vote was a tie with all the Democrats voting yes and all the Republicans voting no. Uh, reminder, because the Senate is currently 50-50, the committees each have the same number of Democrats and Republicans, which I had somehow forgotten. So the nomination can go to the Senate floor, but it requires more hoops. Um, and it suggests that Vice President Harris better be standing by because her vote might be needed to break a tie. Republicans' primary complaints about Becerra is that he's a lawyer, not a doctor, and has no health experience, despite two decades on the 
Ways and Means Health Subcommittee, um, given that the last Health and Human Services Secretary was also a lawyer, is the base really buying this argument by Republicans? Their criticisms of him would have applied to an awful lot of HHS secretaries that they have voted for in the past. One thing that I kind of thought was interesting in sort of the experience um, argument against Becerra was that it came up a lot at the help committee hearing. And then I felt like it came up, I thought, significantly less in the finance committee the following day in their hearing, you know, where there was a lot more focus on his record on abortion, um, you know, the lawsuit that he sued the Trump administration over birth control exemptions. And then the Little Sisters of the Poor intervened in that lawsuit, which is named California versus Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, his previous support for Medicare for All was an issue. This is definitely something that the base of the Republican Party is really focused on. You know, Heritage, some of these other right wing groups are spending a lot of money trying to sink his nomination. The Republican base definitely seems focused on this. I think that it's certainly not a given that Vice President Kamala Harris is going to have to cast the deciding vote. It's going to be close. But I think that both Senator Susan Collins and Senator Lisa Murkowski have both indicated that, you know, they would be open to voting for him just because their questioning in the help committee was very cordial, you know, very issues focused and not controversial issues, I would say. Um, Senator Collins last week when I was up on the Hill said that she thought he did a good job in the hearing and that they were trading phone calls on school reopenings. So this is definitely going to be tight. It's the first um, cabinet position in this Congress, this tied Congress that Senator Schumer is going to have to go through these added steps to get um, the nomination on the floor, but that should be done fairly easily. You know, this was done once back in 2001, the last time there was a 50-50 Senate. So I expect to see this moving at some point as soon as next week. Yeah, the the tone in the Finance Committee was quite different than the tone in the Help Committee. Um, the Finance Committee is the committee that sends it to the floor of the Help, has sort of a courtesy hearing. There was a lot more talk about abortion in um, finance, and it was a lot angrier uh, talk about abortion in finance. So, I mean, we have not heard any of the centrist Democrats say that they would not vote for him. Something could come up, but we haven't heard it, and it's really not very likely. And I do think he will get a couple of Republican votes. I don't think it'll... I mean, again, there's clearly pressure. The During the Finance Committee hearing last week, it was fairly civil. And in the middle of it, you know, press release comes out beating up on a Becerra right in the middle of it from minority leaders' office, from, from, from McConnell's office, very hostile, very critical, very beat him up. The tone of that written press release from McConnell was more aggressive and more negative than the tone of the hearing that we were all watching at that very minute. And that was sort of a clue. You knew that most or all the Senate finance Republicans would vote against him. I'd be surprised to see it get tanked. And, you know, people like Crapo, you forget these people have these ties. You know, Crapo's super, super conservative. He's the ranking member now on finance. He has not traditionally been Mr. Healthcare. He has other issues that he's more focused on, but he will have to engage more in healthcare. And I had totally forgotten that, you know, back in, what, 2010, whenever it was, the Anti-Deficit um, Entitlement Commission, the, the, the uh, Simpson-Bowles Commission, Becerra and Crapo were on that. And they still have a relationship. They were very nice to each other. And it was really very civil. You know, is he, did he vote against him? He voted against him saying, but I'm still going to work with you. I was going to say, I think a lot of these people who were voted against him are saying, I'm going to vote against you, but I'm still willing to work with you on X, Y, and Z issues, um, which kind of, to me, is a hint that they sort of expect that he'll be confirmed. One thing that's so predictable about these hearings, and I think it surprises people who don't watch a lot of them, is that they always devolve into sort of parochial, you know, state issues, because it's one of their few chances. They don't get that many chances to, you know, talk to the secretary in public, so they need to sort of telegraph to their constituents. It's like, I really care, you know, if you're 
Dr. Mike Crapo, what's going on in Idaho that, that involves the Department of Health and Human Services? And, and so you, you end up sort of seeing everybody's pet health issues when you get these confirmation hearings. And I guess you'll see it again, assuming he gets confirmed when there are budget hearings. But there was more discussion about the 340B drug discount <laughs> program, which is a can of worms for many, you know, that, but most Americans have no idea what it is. There was more conversation there was than there was about the ACA or Medicare for All or That's any true. of those things. It was it was it was a very wonky, except for abortion. The rest of it was pretty parole, you know, uh, vaccination clinics in Alaska and uh, 340B. And, you know, I don't remember all the others. But, yeah, Julie's right. And they were very parochial. And the, the, the partisan beat up part was was abortion and contraception and nuns. All right. Well, let's talk at least briefly about budget reconciliation. The House passed the covid relief bill in the wee hours of Saturday morning, giving me and probably Joanne flashbacks to 2003 when the Medicare drug bill also passed in the middle of the night on a Friday slash Saturday. Uh, the minimum wage increase is out, but COBRA subsidies are okay, says the Senate parliamentarian. But there are still things being tinkered with even as we speak. Um, Mel, can Congress actually get this done before its self-imposed deadline of March 14th when the latest round of unemployment benefits runs out? It seems like they're on track to, um, you know, there have not yet been any Democratic defections um, on this bill. You know, we haven't seen Senator Sanders or Senator Manchin come out and say they're going to oppose it. It is still being tinkered with at this point. Um, we had expected the Senate to take a procedural vote to sort of start consideration, start the whole voterama process yesterday on Wednesday evening. That did not happen. So, That'll happen as soon as this afternoon. And that sort of starts off a long process of just getting on the bill. They did, you know, Senate Democrats, you know, sort of not publicly, but leaked out um, an updated version of the bill yesterday with a couple of changes. So, you know, you noted the COBRA subsidies, bumped those up to 100 percent, added in some money for hospitals, made a couple of other changes to sort of, you know, kind of get this rolling. So that will be something that, you know, we could start seeing as soon as today. They have until what is it, March 14th? So the House will have to take it up again after the Senate presumably passes it. So it'll be tight, but it seems that barring any major changes, they're on track to be able to pass this by their self-imposed deadline. And Joanne, when you were talking about giving states carrots, I guess that's how they ended up doing the Medicaid part of this. We've talked about the the ACA changes a lot of times. I know a lot of a lot of mainstream media, if you will, noticed that this week. Um, we noticed that a long time ago. But on Medicaid, they're actually encouraging the states that have not expanded Medicaid. I think there's 14 left of them. Um, they will give them an increase in their base Medicaid uh, matching percentage if they take the expansion. And I have, I don't know whether I think that'll work or not, but that's where they sort of landed. I think any state that's moving in that direction and, and discussing it anyway, it'll help the proponents. I mean, if you've turned it down all these years, including when it was free for the states, if you're turning it down in a pandemic when people's going to have all sorts of pent up health problems, there's chronic versions of this disease that we don't know how many people are affected by. I mean, this is just, you know, this country is going to have huge problems. If you're turning it down on ideological reasons because you still don't like Obamacare, I don't think this will change your mind. If you're a state that's sort of, you know, tiptoeing toward expansion, um, this might help. 
I mean, Mississippi has talked about expansion. Texas has had a few legislators. It's, you know, Abbott doesn't want it, but there are there have been some conversations. They haven't taken off. Um, there's stuff going on in Kansas for several years now. Maybe Kansas, where there's a, a Democratic governor now and, and, and some legislators who do want it. It's been really close in Kansas. In fact, I thought Kansas had expanded. <laughs> that, that might be a state where it makes a difference. But is it 12, whatever it's 12 or 14 states that haven't done it? Are they going to say, whoopee, we can do it now? Nah. Yeah, I'm not seeing this moving the needle in Florida or Georgia, but um, but you never. Georgia's know. a little strange because they're trying to do this partial thing, but that, that, that's. Um, yeah, Georgia's a whole other subject of discussion right. that we will have right. at some point. But meantime, there's something that I've been wanting to talk about for a couple of weeks. So let's just talk about it at least briefly. Um, while plenty of people are suffering economically and from COVID and from frustration at not being able to get a vaccine, there is also a growing number of Americans who are suffering serious mental health problems. According to the CDC, life expectancy fell by a full year in the first half of 2020. That included a 20% increase in overdose deaths. Apparently, it's not not just the stress of COVID and quarantining and losing jobs, but also the cutoff of people from their treatment options. There's also a giant unmet demand for more traditional mental health treatment. Why aren't we hearing more about this? It wasn't that long ago that the opioid crisis was the biggest health issue in the country. I mean, I think the answer is, is reasonably obvious. It's that, you know, the COVID pandemic has sort of sucked the life out of the room of many other healthcare issues that aren't very clearly related to it. Although you do hear a lot of discussion about the impact of kind of the restrictions that we're all sort of living with because of COVID and the impact on mental health and perhaps and including people suffering from addiction and so forth. That hasn't necessarily translated, though, um, as these stories we were looking at point out into action on the policy level. One thing I thought was interesting is yesterday, President Biden brought a number of bipartisan lawmakers to his office to talk about other healthcare issues besides to talk about cancer, cancer. Um, I think he brought up Alzheimer's as well. So he's signaling he's interested in taking action on other healthcare challenges in the country. I don't think I heard him mention addiction, but I think it's an issue he has sort of a personal connection with. Um, the last time Congress sort of passed big legislation dealing with kind of working towards improving sort of the regulatory landscape towards getting towards more cures, a huge opioid bill got attached to that as well. So I think there's opportunities for it to come up. But the way our federal government and Congress tends to work is they can kind of get very, um, you know, sort of sidetracked and focused on the crisis of the moment. And even though this is a huge crisis, it's just gotten overshadowed and it's hard for them sometimes to focus on like the double whammy, particularly as they're also working to, you know, confirm a lot of new nominees as they deal with all this COVID work. Joanne, you've, you know, spent so much time on mental health. I mean, do you feel like it's getting sort of short shrift right now? I think that everybody is aware of it. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of reporting in the last two or three months that's talking to state public health officials, and it comes up in every conversation. Both the opioid crisis and de depression and anxiety and isolation. And I think even though mo those of us who are, you know, managing to get up and put, you know, one foot in the other, in front of the other and get through every day, I think all of us have impact that we may not see or understand yet. And, you know, in some ways, there have been um, hidden blessings 
of this horrible year, and I don't want to minimize how horrible this year is, but I mean, I think some families have spent more time together in ways that are good. Some parents and children have spent time together in ways that are good. Some couples have actually, you know, learned how to share the remote. Um, <laughs> so so not, not necessarily in my house, but um, the, <laughs> it's so complicated, I can't use our remote. It's got, he's got four, but I take risks. But I, I think that the healthcare world and state officials are really, really aware of this. I don't think they have their arms on how to solve it right now while vaccination and testing and other things are still their priority. I think they're terrified of how bad it really is, how um, ill-equipped our healthcare system is to deal with it. We do not have enough mental health providers. We certainly don't have enough mental health providers who take insurance because the insurers pay very little. Um, it's a real burden if you can't afford to go out of network. It's hard to get care. It's hard to pay for care. It's hard to get off waiting lists and get into care. And that's without a pandemic. So I hope we're ready to have a serious conversation about how to do this. And we should be thinking about getting mental health services up and in person fast, just like we're getting schools, because telemedicine's great. I, probably all of us have done some kind of telemedicine over the past year. It fills a lot of need. I don't know that it's really a substitute for the in-person human contact in the mental health world. And I mean, I think as all of you know, because I've spoken about it on the podcast and, and after a few months, I was able to write about it. You know, I lost a, a, I lost my college, one of my college roommates this year who was severely mentally ill. And, you know, she didn't die of COVID, but she died because of COVID. And her mental health deteriorated to the point where, where she died. She didn't um, take her life, but she died. Her mental health providers on the telephone did not see the severity. So there are probably, there are probably many, many other Bonnies around whose stories are not being told because their college roommate isn't a journalist. I was just going to say on the policy front, um, very big pivot. Um, I think that this is something that, you know, like Joanne said, you know, local public health officials are aware of this. There are plenty of lawmakers who seem aware of this. You know, mental health issues came up last week in the Becerra hearings. To previous points, you know, Congress has a hard time, you know, kind of focusing and shifting in big issues. But I would be surprised if at some point mental health and substance abuse issues didn't come up in Congress at some point later this session, sort of once we've hopefully moved beyond the true pandemic point here. You know, there is additional funding for these issues in this pandemic relief bill. But, you know, it's unclear, you know, what sort of policy changes that might mean in terms of, you know, standing up new providers or clinics or places that people can actually go to get care or addressing any of those like insurance challenges with mental health. Yeah, I'm just hoping, you know, what what Joanne said, you know, I think one of the things pandemic has clearly done is shown that we need to to stand up our public health infrastructure a whole lot better. But I think the second most important thing is that it's shown a light on something that's been there for quite a while, which is that there are mental health infrastructure sucks and we really do need to fix it. And um, and maybe maybe the the magnitude of this problem going forward will actually prompt Congress to pay attention. Yeah, and it's going to be an issue in children because, you know, at, at what they call adverse childhood experiences, ACE, millions of kids across America are having adverse childhood experiences in all races and social classes. Being stuck at home for a year and not being in the classroom is not the greatest thing for children. Some are fine. Some are doing great on Zoom. They have a kid they can play safely with next door. They have interaction. And some are in abusive, horrible situations or just really isolated and afraid or have had lost parents and don't have the support 
you know, that they need. So it's not just what's going on right now, and it's not just what's going on in six months. For some of children and teens, they're going to be living with the consequences of this in ways that may not be immediately apparent, but it can mark them. And they're going to need help, and we need to have a society that's ready to make sure they get it. All right. Well, we will come back to this, um, but that is as much time as we have for the news this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with Jordan Rao, and then we will come back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Jordan Rao, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Welcome back, Jordan. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) So tell us about this month's patient, who she is and how she ended up in the hospital. Her name is Divya Singh, and she is a college student who came from India to Hofstra University last fall to start college. And she was supposed to have her family pay for the entire tuition, but they had some trouble coming up with the money. And that kicked in some panic attacks that she's had throughout her life. She went to see the college counselor. And because she mentioned some thoughts of suicide, he felt compelled to send her to an inpatient stay at a hospital, uh, Hillside, which is a psychiatric hospital on Long Island. It didn't really help that much, but then the bill came, right? That's right. So she went there, and then a couple of weeks later, she got a bill for $3,400, which was her share of the $17,000 bill that her insurance had agreed to pay. So she had insurance, but they still charged her the $3,400. Yeah. I mean, one of the things they they went around and they said, you have insurance. And, you know, from the hospital perspective, that's what they really care about because the insurer is going to pay the vast majority of the bill. So once she said, yes, I do, here's my information, that was sort of the end of their inquiry at the time. So what eventually happened with this bill? Did she have to pay it? Obviously, she's having trouble paying her tuition. She doesn't have $3,400 hanging around. Right. So after we called the hospital, they got in touch with her and they realized that um, she would qualify for Medicaid under uh, New York state law. And so they signed her up for that and it was retroactive. And so her bill basically disappeared. Now, in the billing letter, they included some language saying, oh, if you've got some financial issues, call this number. But it wasn't really clear that, you know, hey, this means that we will reduce or eliminate your bill or find a way to do it. It was sort of couched in more of a of language of, you know, oh, maybe you can pay in installments and that type of thing. And plus, she was so, you know, horrified when she got the bill that, you know, like a lot of people, she got really upset and, you don't, you know, look as closely. And in fact, you know, she ended up crumpling up the bill, just the original bill, just uh, being upset. We have it up on our website and you can see the crumple. Um, (laughs) I mean, she's she's a college freshman, thousands of miles from home in a strange place in a pandemic, having a panic attack. You would think this was this is not sort of the, the, the best moment at which to try and figure out what you're eligible for. Yes. And there's a, a real painful sort of, you know, double hit with her story, which is that her panic attacks were caused by financial stress. And then the quote solution to it created more financial stress. It created more panic attacks. So what eventually happened? You said that the bill went away and she's now on Medicaid. Is that is that basically where we are? Yeah. Yeah. So she is on Medicaid. And so she's just um, back to dealing with she still has her family's got a pay about another $16,000 for her uh, tuition bill. But the cost of this particular stay is resolved. This probably wouldn't have worked in most states 
In most states, Medicaid doesn't cover foreign students, but in New York, which has a more generous program, they do cover them for emergency hospitalizations, which is qualified for. But I imagine this happens, this sort of thing happens to a lot of people, which is they end up in a psychiatric or other hospital. They have insurance, but their insurance has an enormous copayment. People don't realize, I guess, you know, I think they know if you're uninsured, there are programs that will help you pay the bill. But I think a lot of people don't realize that if you're insured, there are programs that can help you pay the bill if you end up with a multi-thousand dollar copayment. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that, um, you know, 10 years into uh, the Affordable Care Act, a lot of the uninsured has been resolved. But the underinsured, which is um, her situation, and a lot of people, not just psychiatric hospitals, but all hospitalizations face. And you don't realize that charity care, which is the, you know, the sort of lay term for these type of financial assistance programs that all hospitals uh, have and all nonprofit hospitals are required to have. That was really created and formed at a time when the big problem was you didn't have any insurance. And even as that becomes less of a problem, it's still a problem for millions of Americans, you have a greater problem because of higher deductible plans, higher co-pays, higher out-of-pocket maximums for people having insurance but still having extreme problems paying their gigantic chunk of it. And the hospital intake, what, what I took away from this story, and you know we don't know exactly what happened within the hospital, what I took away from this story was that they have a vetting process to make sure that the bill is paid and they have counselors. But once they get that check off that someone has got insurance, their sort of due diligence stopped. So they didn't, they could have at the time, if they had been inquiring more, they said, okay, you've got insurance. All right, let's look further. And how much of that are you going to pay? Oh, wow, $3,400. You know, That's a problem. Let's see what else we can do. Hey, you're eligible for Medicaid. Theoretically, this could have been stopped on the front end, but the hospitals aren't, haven't re-geared their programs to deal with underinsured people. And obviously there's a financial disincentive to do it because, you know, from their big picture budget, that's not really where their concern is. Their concern is that, you know, if someone has insurance, that's that makes them know that the vast majority of the bill is going to get paid. So the bottom line from the patient's point of view, though, is that even if you have insurance, if you get a bill you can't pay, obviously, if you call the hospital, they're going to say, oh, we'll put you on a billing plan. Um, but it, it might be worth it to do your due diligence at the back end to see if there's another way to get your share paid, because there might be. Yeah, that's right. You really have to be the, um, the more assertive person in this arrangement. And the good thing is that the IRS has required hospitals to be a bit less opaque about these things. They have to post their uh, financial assistance plans online. They have to put them in a plain English summary, which is sort of disturbing that you have to specify that something is in plain English. But they are reasonably comprehensive to the layperson, and you've just got to ask a lot of questions to figure this out. Now, you and I do this professionally, and honestly, I wouldn't have known that if she'd come to me or to you, you know, would we have known, oh, you know, you might be eligible for Medicaid under this particular thing. You don't know. And so you've really got to be assertive and not just settle for, okay, yeah, either I can't pay my bill, so I guess you'll have to send me to collections or, yeah, sure, I'll try to pay it in installments. And you really have to push them to see the limits of their policies and whether they'll be willing to share that information with you. Yet another place where the onus becomes on the patient. Jordan Rao, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So the piece I'm looking at is um, 
Five Pandemic Mistakes We Keep Repeating by Zainab Tufeki in The Atlantic. And it's a piece that really looks quite in depth at um, health communication challenges we've had in this country. Um, Something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And she talks about things like risk compensation, harm reduction, um, the types of rules we set up. So some examples of places she highlights where we've went wrong is, you know, we focus very strictly on, you know, six feet of space and 15 minutes and things that actually we know are not quite accurate. So say you're sitting inside with somebody for, you know, less than 15 minutes, that doesn't actually necessarily mean you're safe from COVID if you're working in an office all day, but six feet apart from somebody, you should still be wearing a mask and you you definitely want to focus on the ventilation in that indoor space. Um, so there's been a lot of sort of misapplication of folks trying to create very simple rules. And she also talks about a lot of the sort of shame and the lack of focus on harm reduction, which we're very familiar with, I think, in the um, opioid and mental health space, which we just talked about in the sex education space, which is kind of people are going to make certain decisions about their behavior. And the best thing we can often do is figure out how to protect them making those decisions instead of telling them don't do it because they're probably going to do it anyway. So again, that's saying, you know, we really recommend you probably don't want to gather for the holidays. But if you do gather, that's telling people, okay, gather outside, try maybe to limit any time eating. If you really are going to go inside, open every window. You know, we've put a lot of rigidity in our communications and we haven't also adapted them as the pandemic goes on. Um, A big issue now, of course, that she talks about is our behavior around vaccines and how we're sort of oftentimes sort of downplaying how great these vaccines are by telling people, oh, but you can't change anything yet, even though you're vaccinated. And that's just, that's not really going to encourage vaccine uptake. People to get vaccine. It was a good piece. Uh, Joanne. I have a piece by two of my colleagues, Victoria Colliver and Nolan uh, McCaskill. Um, A complicated, um, it's about COVID hotspots, literally, literal COVID hotspots. It's um, a complicated task. It's called in, in areas mostly poor, where there's a lot more concrete and a lot less green space and less access to air conditioning, there's more COVID. And it's going to get worse as we have more heat in the world. So if you map the physical hotspots with the COVID hotspots, lo and behold, they're one and the same. The article actually discusses something called resiliency centers, which is really an interesting concept. So instead of just some public building where you crowd people into folding chairs around an air conditioner and have a cooling center, you have a much more sophisticated um, community resiliency center where you can do heat in the winter and you can do cool in the summer and you have a communicate, you have social services liaisons there and you have emergency response in one place. And as our climate gets, you know, more bonkers, which is the scientific term, you know, what we just saw in, in Texas, the heat and the cold and the craziness, our planet is inflicting upon us might be something to think about. It was a, it was a provocative piece. Yes. Mel. Yeah. I, um, my extra credit this week is by Rachel Kors from STAT. The Trump administration quietly spent billions in hospital funds on Operation Warp Speed. Um, you know, I thought this was really interesting. There's been a lot of conversation um, in congressional circles, congressional health circles about, you know, the 
provider relief fund and how much money is actually was actually left in it. Um, the fact that the initial COVID relief bill didn't have additional funding for the provider relief fund was, you know, a lot of concern to Republicans. And the Trump administration, Rachel reports, dipped into this fund to help fund Operation Warp Speed contracts when they were running out of money for the vaccine development. Um, and this kind of was interesting to me because the Trump administration, you know, Rachel reports, didn't want to go back to Congress with another allocation request until they had used all of the COVID-19 relief funds. Um, but at the same time, you know, one of the issues that has been most bipartisan in providing more funding has been for vaccine development. So I thought this was a really interesting story. Um, turnaround yesterday, the latest version of the relief bill, like I said earlier, has additional funding for hospitals and healthcare providers, um, possibly to tr- that can kind of help make up for some of this funding. So interesting story um, from our colleague and being able to see sort of the turnaround is interesting as well. It is. Well, my story is from my KHN colleague, Jenny Gold, from the radio show Reveal. It's called Into the COVID ICU. Uh, Jenny followed a newly graduated medical student for eight months. She went from Stanford Medical School to a safety net hospital in Fresno, California, that was very hard hit by the pandemic. It's about how the pandemic is affecting our newest frontline medical workers. And I can only urge you in the strongest terms to listen to it and to listen to the whole thing. It's, it's, I think, a really important microcosm of everything that we've all experienced in the past year. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me i'm at jay rovner mel at mel mcintyre joanne at joanne cannon sarah at sarah carlin we will be back in your feed next week in the meantime be healthy 